morning, First Church. Let's uh, let's go ahead and stand. I'm glad y'all could be here today. Um, everybody online, we're glad you're watching. Um, we are here to praise Jesus. So let's go ahead and pray real quick. Um, Father, you are so powerful, and you are you are love. You love us so well, God. We pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that we would keep our eyes on you, that you would fill this place, um, fill our hearts with your love and your spirit, um, that we would just praise you with all our hearts. Oh, yeah. 
You are the one thing. You are the one thing that I need. You are the one thing. You are the one. You are the one thing. You are the one thing that I need. You are the one thing. You are the one thing that I
And I will lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. Good. 
He's in love like no other tried in vain a thousand ways my fears to quell my hopes to raise but what I need your word has said is ever only Jesus you died
today um, we pray that you would just make all of your ways known to us that we would see clearly who you are and your love for us um, we pray that we would just give everything that we have to you God that we would lay all of our problems out of our feet um, all of our riches all of our things God you are you are so glorious and so powerful um, and you are so loving um, Jesus, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we can take a seat. We're going to take a minute to get the stage set up and we'll be back. Everybody quiets down. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Uh, for those of you at home, for those of you who are here, thanks for staying. Uh, we're in a study on the book of Hosea, and we've been talking about this scandalous love, this, this love that, uh, that God has for his people, and it is shown through uh, two human beings, uh, Hosea and, and his wife Gomer, and how their, uh, their, their relationship goes back and forth, at, and God shows his love for his people through that. And it's a scandalous love. It's a supernatural love. It's a love that uh, we don't experience very much uh, on, a, on a personal basis, and, and it's God's love for us. And if you remember, at one point, uh, we go back a few chapters, uh, Hosea went and he bought Gomer back. She'd, she'd, she'd run away from him. She'd gotten into prostitution. She'd fallen on hard times. Evidently, she'd, she'd been enslaved in some way, you know, whether it's like with a pimp or whether it's enslaved in, as, as an actual slave, which happened a lot back then. And, and he goes and he buys her back as an act of love. And God told him to do that, which, which 
points ahead to the fact that there is a price, there is a cost involved in sin, and God says, I'm willing to pay that price. And so he shows that. And then if you remember, Hosea uh, takes Gomer home, and he says, basically, for a while, we're going to have no relations. We're, we're not going to, there's, there's not going to be any sex. We're just going to, we're, we're going to be together, and we're going to rebuild our relationship from the ground up, almost like a detox you know, with, with that kind of a thing. And we see God talking about this in the next, these chapters that we're looking at now and coming when he says, there is going to be a point in time because you keep running from me that Assyria is going to come and they're going to take you. And, and it's going to separate us. You're not going to be, you're not going to be able to go to the temple. You're not going to be able to go to Jerusalem. You're not going to be able to go to Bethel. You're not going to be able to go those places you thought you could go. And through that, we're going to rebuild our relationship. I'm going to call you back out of that land after you've been, after you've been enslaved in a sense. I'm going to call you back out of that land. I'm going to bring you home and we're going to rebuild this relationship. But in the meantime, he keeps trying to get them to change their ways. He keeps trying. He brings, he, he tells them there's discipline coming. There's discipline coming. Please change. And, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this idea of discipline is a tricky idea. It's tricky when you're raising kids. I know for my wife and I, we struggled with how we would implement discipline in our kids' lives um, because so often, you know, kids are really good at manipulating. And if you catch them in something, they get real sorry. But oftentimes they're sorry because they got caught. They're not necessarily sorry for what they did. Um, a few years ago, I was at the grocery store and this guy was there and I felt terrible for him. His little daughter was just acting up and um, she was causing a stir and getting louder and louder. And he kept saying, we're going to have to leave. If you don't stop, I'm going to have to take you out of here. And uh, and he had told her that if she would behave, he said, remember, if you behave, I'm going to get you a candy bar. And she kept misbehaving and misbehaving. So finally, he says, that's it. We're leaving. And he go, he's walking by, and I'm seeing him as he walks away. And, and she goes, but what about the candy bar? And he said, you're not getting the candy bar. You're, you're not getting the candy bar. And she looked at him, and there was, you could see the anger. You know, she's like, oh, I said, this, this could get really bad. You know, that man needs to run out of the store, Right. And as he's getting towards the door, she looks back and people are watching, right? And I'm watching. And she goes, Daddy, please, loud, don't beat me. Don't beat me. As he's walking and he stopped and he looked at her. And then you see him go. And he looks, he goes, I don't beat my daughter. And then he walks out. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was getting one last dig in. Why? Because she, she wanted to punish him for punishing her. And uh, children can be hypocrites, but so can we, right? Adults do it too. We have this, and, 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 and as you get into, into certain areas of our society, people are experts at this, the experts at the idea of apologizing without actually saying that you're really sorry, right? I'm sorry you misunderstood what I said. What does that say? That's not an apology. It just means you're dumb, right? I'm sorry that you took it that way. We get that all the time. I'm sorry that you were offended, which means you're thin-skinned, right? When the Enron thing happened, and it was just a terrible tragedy, people lost uh, a tremendous amount of money that they'd invested. People lost jobs. A few people committed suicide. And, and a couple of the, of the uh, higher-ups, the CEO and a couple others, they came out and they said, listen, we acknowledge that mistakes were made. Well, boy, that's a non-apology if you ever heard one, you know, just saying, oh, oops, 
that kind of a thing, which basically means, I'm sorry, we got caught. All right. So, so we all can live that way. We all can be that way. The children of Israel are that way. Is there any hope then? We act like we're outwardly sorry, but in our heart, we're not really sorry. So is there good news for hypocrites? And yes, Hosea 6 and 7 is a difficult passages, but it, there's good news for hypocrites in there. Because it's like God is a spiritual doctor and he's doing a checkup. So he's going to tell them there's a cure for spiritual rebellion. He's, he's already been telling them you're rebelling and he's going to emphasize it more. But he's starting off this chapter by saying there's a cure for spiritual rebellion. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Hosea is speaking. And it seems like he's speaking with some other uh, of, the, um, of, of the godly people left in the land, you know, the remnant. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He's telling everybody around him. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Oops got to touch that. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So we have this first thing he's saying is there's a cure for this spiritual rebellion. And he's, he's telling them, we need to return. We need to return to the Lord. Let us do this together. He says, as a nation, we need to return to God because they're not currently walking with God. They're rebelling against him. And so this call is to come back. Come back. You know, we talked about this last week, Revelation chapter 2, I think it is, where he says to, to, to one of the cities there, you've, you've, you've left your first love. You've walked away from your first love. Come back. Come back to your first love. And so he, he, he talks about there's going to be a healing, a binding of wounds. It's a desperate picture, but there's hope here. And then in, in verse in verse in the end of verse two, he says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Here's another one of those. I've told, talked about this before. Throughout the word of God, there are three day stories. They're planted all throughout the Old Testament to point to Jesus, to point to his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is one of them. Um, we we know it's one of them by looking at it, but also. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. What is he talking about? He's talking about according to what the Old Testament told us. And this is one of those passages that Paul is looking back on. He's looking back on this. And so he's, we need to be revived. That is, we need to have new life. We need to have new life. Now, what is he asking for here? What is he calling them to do to repent? He's saying, come back. The goal is repentance, to acknowledge him, it says. And we talked about this word, acknowledge. It's in Hosea a lot. And acknowledge is the idea of taking knowledge in, understanding something, and then working it out in my life. I acknowledge God when I understand what he asked me to do, and I do it. So that he wants, we understand that he wants to be an integral part of our life. This is such good news. We have a God who wants to be known. He wants to be the integral part of your life. This is what brings him glory. He reveals himself to us, and then he calls us to come and know him. And healing and renewal is found in him. We see that here. And ultimately, it's a three-day story, because how will this ultimately be accomplished at the cross when Jesus, for our sins, is struck down? The tearing falls on him so that we can be healed. And he is killed so that we can live 
And we see judgment and mercy all in this one place. First Peter 2, Peter talks about this, that his, Jesus' wounds bring healing to our lives. And so now, to all the people, Hosea is calling to them. And he's saying, he'll do it. He'll heal us. He'll bind us. He'll revive us. He'll restore us. He will appear. We need to trust him. And when he says he has done it, when he says it is finished, it will, it will glorify him. So in verse 3, he says, let us press on. He says, we need to work. We need to pursue. Because the rains will come if we follow him. He will bring those rains that bring growth. And the idea being the growth in our relationship with the Lord. So that what we need to do is how do we do that? Well, we carve out time in our lives to read God's word. Why? To grow. We carve out time in our lives to pray. Why? Because confession and prayer, casting our cares on him, it brings growth into our life. We carve out time in our lives to spend time with small groups of people sometimes. Why? Because that helps us grow in the Lord through mutual exhortation and encouragement. God wants to be known, but we tend to wander. And Hosea is saying, come, let us return. He says, turn back to the Lord. That's the repentance that goes on there. Martin Luther talked about this in his life, saying this is a daily occurrence, this repentance. And it it makes a huge contrast to the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and the gods of that day and age, and even today. The difference between God and those other gods Those other gods were very impersonal. There was no intimacy. That was not even something they would have even thought about. They are very distant. They're not near. To get them to interact with you in a real-life situation, I saw a, a detailed video one time by a historian on how a person brought an offering to get an answer to the god Apollo and what was involved in it. First thing that was involved was a lot of money. He had to bring an offering for Apollo. He had to bring money for the priests who were involved in it. He had to bring money for the person who would get the message, the soothsayer in a sense that would get the message. And, 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 it, was, and it was a huge thing. And then they just waited, sometimes for months for their answer. They would just wait until the priest told them they'd had an answer. Sometimes they never got an answer. And so th- there's this impersonal, distant God. This was a, the gods of that day were takers, not givers. They were always changing. They were very capricious and fickle. We have a God who says, I am unchanging. There is no turning, no changing of shadow with me. And for people who are new to this, maybe it's new to to you, this is is what we talk about so much of the time. There's no name calling. You're safe here just to listen and to understand what our message is. Even online or here, if you want more information or you'd like to just talk about it, you've got questions, I would be happy to. You can call me, I'll talk to you anytime. We'll correspond by email, whatever's comfortable for you. And so we have this, this call, this call to repentance. And we're going to see here as we, as we move on that there is no, there's no repentance. There's a rebellion. There's a refusal to return. And, and that sub-point there says it's wrapped up in super, superficial um, spirituality. All right? He says that in verses, we'll start at verse uh, 4 here. What, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Now, right off, I just want to say that. What can I do with you, Ephraim? It's, it's God pleading. He's, it's like God is saying, what, what would it take? What will bring you back? What can I do? He's pleading with them. 
He says your love is like that morning mist. It just disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. That is, he sends prophets, and the prophets speak difficult words to them. I killed you with the words of my mouth. See, that's those words those prophets spoke. Uh, Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, So he's he's telling them, he's saying, what what, what can I do for you? What what needs to happen here? You're like the early dew. When you go out, the grass is so wet in the morning on a hot, even on a hot day, the grass is so wet oftentimes in the morning and very shortly it's burned off. The dew is gone. It's short-lived. It's, it's the early dew or the early mist, you know, that's, it's, it's like a bad country song. It's like your, your song that goes, your love is the dew, like the dew in the pasture, but as soon as it gets hot, you desert me and steal my pickup truck. You know, it's just like one of those kind of things where it just, it, we see what it's saying. He could have said your love is deeper than the ocean. He could have said your love is massive like a mountain, but it wasn't. That's the problem. And I have to stop and think here because if we're, we talk about this a lot, we have to do the hard work of saying, where am I in this? And apply it to ourselves. When is my love for God like a mist gone too quick? In verse five, he mentions the prophets. God always warns his people. We saw this a couple chapters ago where he said the trumpet sound is blowing. The warning is coming. He always warns his people. And so for me and maybe for you, this is God's warning to us. Are we getting wrapped up in this superficial spirituality? Because what is his desire? What is his desire? In verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, I desire acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Acknowledgement, knowing what God, who God is, knowing what he says, and acting on it. So the sacrifices, you see, that this is the thing. It's not that he's telling them to stop sacrificing. He's telling them what's more important. Because the sacrifices pointed to something. It wasn't the physical sacrifice that accomplished it. It was what it pointed towards. Sacrifices pointed to what? They pointed to the fact that there's sin, that sin needs to be dealt with. That there has to, sometimes with sin, there has to be a punishment that's involved with it. And see, giving sacrifices, in a sense, is the easy part. People could do it, they could do a big one or a small one, and and they would feel like, okay, I'm okay with God. But they miss the point. They miss the point of what the sacrifice points to. That points to their sin, points to their heart. It points to their need for God to take care of what the problems are in their lives. You know, probably for most people in our day and age, we don't have sacrifices per se like that. But probably for most people, and I hate to talk about this, but you guys I've mentioned that before, is giving money. Giving money is the toughest part. But you know what, really? If you, if you figure out your budget and you figure out all these things and all these things, and then you go, hey, I got a little left over. I'll give a part of that to God. That's not very hard when you think about it. It's kind of easy. But see, that misses the point of giving. Giving is commanded by God, but it points to something that's much bigger. It's not about earning favors with him. Because if we think that we give and somehow God's going to do something back for us, all we've done is we've turned God into a, like, a, like, like a candy machine. We just put in the right amount of money and pull the lever and we get our treat. And God says that's not how it works. That's not what it's about. What is it about? It's about a person who's so thankful for how God has worked in their life. 
It's about a person who's so thankful, so excited about what God's going to do that they give to God to spread that thankfulness and spread that joy to others. In obedience, they give. Because we've lost fact of the sight um, of the idea that giving is worship. As much as singing or praying or studying his word, we are honoring him when we give. We're praising him when we give. We're boasting in him when we give. We're thanking him when we give. We glorify God when we give. It's worship. That's what it is. It's an act of worship because it's about giving. Giving is about the heart. And because ultimately, God doesn't need our money. He wants our heart. But from the beginning, we've known that one way of showing a person's heart is by giving. That's how it works out. Because we can be like a little kid with a toy and just say, mine, mine, this is mine. So God tells them not to stop the sacrifices, but to realize what they point to. They point to mercy. They point to action in the lives of other people. And what happened? They just did sacrifices. They'd sacrifice a a, a little bird, or they'd sacrifice a a lamb, or whatever it was. They They didn't change anything in their heart. It was just an outward thing. And they looked good outwardly, but inwardly they were distant from him. They were ignoring. Jesus tells them, you're ignoring the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. You're ignoring that. You're all about this and this and this and this. And he says, these are the big ones. These other things aren't wrong, but they're lower on the scale. And they were religiously uh, following uh, outward rules, and it was very superficial. And we can do that. You know, it's interesting, Jesus twice in Matthew 9 and also in Matthew chapter 12, he quotes this verse, Hosea 6.6, about mercy. He quotes this verse because it's something that Jesus felt very strongly about because it presses to the heart. It talks about motives. It talks about not going through outward religious behavior, which is so easy to do. And, And that's the problem because that's the danger for us as Christians. We can follow the outward things and we look good to everyone. We look good to those around us to know what the outward expectations are and to react accordingly. Every, every group, every, even churches have their behaviors. First church, we have our behaviors. What are our group behaviors? Well, the first group behavior is show up five minutes late to the service, and then you fit right in with everyone else. The other group behavior is you figure out what, you know when we stand, you know when we sit, you know when we take a break, you know when we sit for a long time, and maybe you can fall asleep during that time and catch up on your nap time. We, we know all those things. And we can do those things and have our heart be elsewhere. And sometimes I I know I struggle singing this morning these great words that honor and glorify God and let my mind wander to things like finances and family matters and just all over the place and having to shake myself and, no, focus, focus. And everybody, if you, if, if you were, I don't, I don't want to encourage this, if you were watching me at that time, you think, wow, he looks like he's so deep in thought so deep in prayer. Actually, I was just thinking about some bills that I needed to pay. See, that can happen. And so we, we, we've got to know it's about the heart. It's about the heart. In uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah 29, 13, he says, the Lord says, 
These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. See, we have a lot of things. We do a lot of things because of the culture we're in. It just fits our culture. But it doesn't mean they're biblical. People worship in different ways in other cultures. They often do different things, and that's fine. But what happens is within once we get the cultural things down, we go, okay, I can do these, and we fit in. And no one knows what's going on in our heart, and that's the great danger. That's the great danger for me. That's the great danger for you. And so he's calling him. He's saying, turn back, repent. Don't be satisfied with this superficial living. Because the point is, this superficial living, when you begin to live superficially and you just give God lip service, what happens is it leads somewhere. And he's saying, the, 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 uh, where does it lead? It leads to the rebellion. It leads to a refusal to return. And, uh, uh, the, oh, I, I already said this, the, outright, the superficial spirituality and then also outright disobedience. Outright disobedience. And I, and I want to give you, in this, these next verses, it's quite a long passage. There's, there's a number of things that, that he, he gives us ideas of how to, recognize, how to recognize it happening in our heart. So outward signs of a disobedient heart. The first one is faithful. And here it is, as at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. Their Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. And so what happens, first of all, I want you to see they're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. They're breaking the covenant. God says, we, we got married. We had an agreement. You've broken it. And you're unfaithful to me. You're unfaithful to my glory. His name means nothing to them, and they don't care. And the rest of the verses point to this. Uh, they illustrate it, they, the, how sin just ripples through society. And he mentions even places. These are places of betrayal, Gilead. He says, Gilead was one of my, and you turned it into a terrible place. Shechem, you turned it into a terrible place. This is what happens when you become unfaithful. This, uh, this superficial spirituality then slides into unfaithfulness, and it begins this downhill slide of, of, of ways we, we recognize the outward signs of a disobedient heart. Second one is ungrateful. And he says, whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all of their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. All right, so they're ungrateful. What is going on here? He's saying that, that I want the, they, they practice these things. Whenever I would heal Israel, whenever uh, uh, I would show Ephraim what they were doing wrong, what would they do? They would practice deceit. They would lie about it. God still desires, he's saying here, to bring healing. But what would they say? They would say they don't think there's any consequences. This happens so much. People sin and nothing bad happens, and they begin to think there are no consequences for my sin. And this is what they're saying. They're ungrateful for what God does, and so, and so they think there's no consequences for any of these things. 
It's like, you know, we can do this in our own lives. Sometimes people financially, you know, sometimes if you get into a, I've seen this, you get into a, a financial difficulties, you, you start to just want to not think about it, just put it off, right? And, and I want to tell you, it's, it's a terrible thing to do. If you decide you don't want to think about paying your payment on your credit card and you just put it off, after a couple times what happens is they call you and they just say, hey, we just want you to know your new interest rate is like 68% or something like that. Why? Because you put those things off, now you're paying for it. And that's what they were doing. They thought they could just put it off. They thought that there were no consequences. And in verse 3, we see here the sin goes to every part of their, of their society, all the way to the palace. They delight the king with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. What's going on? The rulers are saying, if it gets me what I want, and the people, they're saying, if it gets me what I want, then it's okay. The end never justifies the means. It doesn't work that way. But they're saying, well, look, we're getting something out of it. I'm getting money out of it. I'm getting the, whatever it is. So it's okay. And so they delighted the king with their wickedness and the princes with their, with their lies. In other words, the wrong things were being lifted up. Third way, outward signs of a disobedient heart, unrestrained. He says they are adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All the kings fall, and none of them calls on me. So he uses now, he uses these kind of illustrations that they would be very familiar with, but we're not quite as familiar with. He talks two times about an oven, what is, what is going on there? Well, in the first one, he says, it's burning like an oven whose fire the baker uh, need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it dries. What is he saying? He's saying this fire has been stoked so hot that the time usually from the kneading to ready for baking, they have to go in and they have to stir the fire up occasionally to keep it burning hot. But this fire is burning so hot, it's like out of control. It's, it's way hotter than it should be. And what is he saying? He's saying like adulterers, you, you're burning like a fire. You're consuming. You're always needing more. This is, this is the nature of sin. Always needing more. Never satisfied. Sin gives us temporary pleasures that have to be constantly indulged in order to keep those fleeting bits of happiness coming. That's how it works. And so it's a raging fire in this first. And, and it, the whole idea is that there are things that rage can become a raging fire in us. Maybe it's, maybe it's an anger. Maybe it's a hatred of someone or what someone stands for. Maybe it's what someone has done. Maybe it's what they've done to you or, or to someone you care about. Whatever it is, it can become a raging fire and, and it, it can overwhelm you. It's a temptation that you need to deal with. Then the second time, he says, their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. So we're talking about an oven again. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. What is that? Well, oftentimes when they would be done with baking for the evening, they'd bank the coals. They'd push them into a corner. They'd cover them up so they would stay hot all night. And if they did it right in the morning, they'd put in some fresh wood, pull the coals over to the fresh wood, and the fire would ignite immediately. And what is he saying? He's saying sometimes for us, that's what happens in our lives. We, we, we think about something. We play with something. It smolders inside of us. 
Not that we would do it, but we just keep thinking about it. And then at some point in our life, it blows up in front of us. And he's saying this is what happens with sin. We daydream about it a little bit. We think about it. We get a little jolt of pleasure just toying with it. But at some point, it blows up. It explodes. And we oftentimes in our lives, we see things that can be tempting and we wonder. Sometimes, sometimes we say, I know I shouldn't have that, but boy, wouldn't it be great to have that? I know I shouldn't have her, but wouldn't it be great to have her? I know I shouldn't have this thing, but wouldn't it be great if I could have this thing? Wouldn't it be great? What if, what if, what if? And then it blows up on us. And then we're surprised by the intensity and the urgency because it has become a flaming fire. And so he's saying here, we've got this problem and it's going from the top to the bottom. It says they devour their rulers, all their kings fall and none of, none of them call on me. In the last 30 or 40 years before Assyria came and took over Israel and then, and then uh, Judah, of the six kings they had, four of them were assassinated. They were going through, they were devouring them. And he's calling them for that. He's telling them, you, you have allowed this. You're out of control. You're unrestrained. The fourth one, outward signs of a disobedient heart, unfaithful, ungrateful, unrestrained, and then unaware. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. So he starts off and he says, you're, you're unaware. You've, you, you've lost this distinctiveness of what makes you, you. Because Ephraim now has begun to mix with these, with these other nations. It's a flat loaf, not turned over. And I remember reading that a while back when I was first starting. And I'm like, what the heck is a flat loaf not turned over? All right. It, this is, I'm glad you asked. This is what it is. You put a, you put, they, they, they uh, bake these flat loaves, duh, and they just put them on. And what it is, is this one that you've forgotten to, to flip. It really is simple when you think, you've forgotten to flip it. So what happens? The top is not done. The bottom is burnt. You have, you have rendered it inedible on both sides. And so he's saying, this is what's happened. You have become worthless to me. I, I mean, I'm not a real baker, you know, but I mean, I can cook if there's a microwave involved. And, and I can remember a, a while back, you know, getting a burrito out of the, burrito out of the freezer. You ever done this? You put a burrito in there. It tells you, put it on high for, for like two and a half minutes. So I do that with the microwave and I, I pull it out and I'm thinking, oh, it's probably pretty hot. So I cut it in half and I'll start in the middle, you know, and I take a bite out of the middle and it's like still almost frozen. It's like, bleh. That's terrible. So I flip it around to the end, right? Oh, oh, it's blazing hot. It's inedible at that point in time because it's too hot, too cold. It's not edible at either side. And he's saying here, look, this is what you have lost your distinctiveness. You've mixed. You've mixed. They brought in these other gods. They brought in other, th other ideas, other thoughts, and they've mixed them. And he's saying, no, you need to go all in with me. It needs to be devotion to God alone. We mix Jesus with other worldviews. That happens to us because it sounds good to us. It sounds good, but it doesn't make it right. And the, and the, and the worst thing is, in, in verse 9 and 10 there, he says, but he does not realize it. He doesn't even understand what's happening. 
he just goes along, just going along. Life is pretty good right now. I'll just do these things. And he doesn't even understand what's happening. He doesn't understand what's coming. Judgment is coming and they are fooling themselves. We need to be good news to people. Not that we're perfect, that's impossible, but that we're changing, that God is working in our life. We need to show people love because we have been loved. This is what we need, this is our distinctiveness. Oftentimes, you know, um, and, and this whole thing of he, he uh, Great foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize his hair sprinkled with gray. I didn't like that part, but he does not notice it. Um, my um, my two sons, uh, I played soccer, you know, through college, and my two sons did. And sometimes we they would get together with their friends, fellow soccer players, and they they play soccer tennis. And that is, you get on a tennis court and you have a soccer ball, and it's the same rules. As, uh, as tennis, the ball gets to bounce one side, one time on your side, and then it's got to be returned. And so one time they said, Dad, we're short. We've only got three people. Will you come play with us? I said, oh, I don't know. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, Dad. No, Dad, you're good. You're still really good. Come on and play. And so um, at one point, you know, one of the boys, the ball comes across and he just, he just hits it on a rail and it skips. And I'm thinking, well, I just, all I got to do is I'll block it and it'll fly back over the net. But what happened was, you know, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. By the time my foot got up, the ball was already gone. I just couldn't react fast enough. And then this is what was the worst part. Then my oldest son, Derek, goes over to his friend and you see him. And I'm like, oh, I know what was just said. Take it easy on the old guy, right? I, I, I realized, well, well, take it easy on the old guy. And so we're, we, we start, we keep playing and all of a sudden balls get blooped over to me. And then to my partner, who's my other son, balls go, you know, and he's flailing them back, you know, and everything. And they get blooped and I'm going bloop. And so finally I stopped and I said, hey guys, come on. This is a little insulting. Don't do this anymore. And they're like, Okay, and then I just see my other son go, keep doing it. You know, I could just tell, see him say, keep doing it, keep doing it. And one time a ball was hit kind of wide, and it was heading, curving away from me, and I was sprinting after it, and I said, I'm going to make it to this ball if it kills me. And about four steps in, I pulled my hamstring and fell on the floor just going, oh, I'm going to die. You know, and, and, uh, and that's, I could see the boys going, we knew this was going to happen. We knew this was going to happen. <laughs> this old guy. And what was it? What was it? Because my strength had been sapped, but I didn't realize how much. And my hair is sprinkled with gray, but I didn't notice. And what was happening to them, right? He says, this is what's happening to you. You're losing your strength. You're losing your, uh, your distinctiveness. There's a danger of mixing here. Why? Because we know historically what had happened. We knew that they had made a treaty with Egypt to try to protect them from Assyria. And God, God came and, 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 and uh, punished them for this. He says, no, you, you rely on me. You don't make treaties. Don't their chariots and their horses aren't going to protect you. And then when Assyria started invading they, they called Egypt, and Egypt said, I'm sorry, we're not going to do it. Because Egypt realized they were the ultimate target. So then they sent people to Assyria, and they said, hey, we'll make a treaty with you. We'll make a treaty with you. And Assyria said, you had a chance to make a treaty with us, dude. It's over. 
right? What happened? They, instead of trusting God, they started, tr- oh, we can trust Egypt. Oh, we can trust Assyria. They, and, they, and they lost their strength. Their only strength was God. They didn't have a chance against these others. And so they trusted in things that could not be trusted, and it sapped their strength. What are you trusting in? What am I trusting in? It takes away from who you really are. And then in verse 10, it says Israel's arrogance. Their arrogance is just, um, God says, this is unbelievable. It testifies against you. We're in a courtroom and I've called a witness and the witness is your arrogance in my face. And despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. You know, in... in um, in the book of Revelation, he talks to the city of Laodicea and he tells them that they, he wishes they were hot or he wishes they were cold, but they're lukewarm and they make him want to vomit. And uh, the city of Laodicea was kind of in a valley area and up on the mountains was the, city, the town of Hierapolis. And Hierapolis had these pools of mineral water that came out. They were hot out of a active, uh, not active, but of an old volcano. And so these hot mineral springs, and they were known all over the region for being so healthy for people to go and soak in, you know, like, like, like meta- medicinal hot tubs or something. And so people knew from all around the hot water of Hierapolis is so healing. And then back over here it, near the Mount Hermes, I think it's Hermes, I'm I'm not sure which one. Anyways, the, the snow melt happened all year long. They always had a little bit of snow on the mountain. And so for, they got cold water. It was Colossi, I think. And this cold water came, and it was incredibly refreshing and healthy. And then the hot and cold water met in a river, and the river flowed into Laodicea. And Laodicea had this warm, brackish, all heavy with mineral water, it was good from the cold springs. It was, it was healthy from the hot springs, but mixed together, it was putrid. And, and Laodicea was known for having water that you shouldn't drink. And so God tells them, he says, this is the way you've become spiritually. And you make me want to vomit because, because you're not cold and refreshing to people. You're not good in that way. You're not hot and medicinal to people. You're not good in that way. You're just middle of the road, kind of blah, not that good. And he said, you've mixed together just like the Israelites, just like uh, Judah was doing. And he says, I, I, can't, I can't bear that. I can't stand that. So un- unaware was that one. Outward signs of a disobedient heart, unfaithful, ungrateful, unrestrained, unaware, unstable. I'm pretty proud of the uns, I got to tell you. That, that took a lot of work just to get everything start with a U. Verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless. Now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. And when they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. They're unstable. They're easily deceived. He says one of the signs of a heart that is going in the wrong direction is you're easily deceived. You know, Proverbs talks about there's a way that seems right, and and the end of it is death. And we see that all the time, unfortunately, around us, people that think this sounds like a good idea, and it, it turns out to be a terrible idea. So they're easily deceived. They're trusting the wrong things. They're going back and forth like a skittish bird, looking for salvation, back and forth, but they never went to God. And he says, because you trusted them. 
this is going to be a ruin for you. Unstable, and then uh, number six is ungrateful. Just real quick. Um, Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. God is still saying, I want to heal you. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I train them and strengthen their arms, but they plot evil against me. What's going on here? Well, we can see this even to this day in some religions where people believe that if you beat yourself, if you hurt yourself somehow, you un. Uh, you, you gain favor with God or whatever God you happen to worship. And that's, that's what they were doing then. They, they were cutting themselves, thinking that their gods would see how serious they were. And unfortunately, we can do that. I was just talking to somebody about fasting the other day. They were asking me some ideas on fasting and things like that. And, and uh, one of the things I was saying was just don't fall into the trap that somehow you're not eating and suffering these hunger pangs makes God pay attention to you more or love you more or answer your prayers more. Use those hunger pangs as a signal to pray more, to focus on God more. That's what you want to do. Don't use it thinking you earn something. And this happens all over the world. I have two brothers that were, um, that were uh, pastors and church planters in Portugal. And, and in there, there's a shrine up at the top of a mountain. And people believe that if they can climb the steps to the shrine on their knees, they'll get whatever they asked for. And so if you go there today, you go there today, and you see those steps, they're beautiful steps, they're beautiful steps, they're, and then they start getting bloodstained. And then it's just a trail of blood to the top on, on the steps because they believe that, that God will pay attention to them and answer whatever that prayer is, that special thing that they need, whether it's a healing or a child, whatever it is, because, because they hurt themselves so badly. And, and uh, it happens to this day. It happens all over the world in different ways. And he's saying, you... you you don't understand. You don't understand. He says, I'm the one that strengthens your arm, and you, yet you, go, you run from me. You plot evil against me. Uh, then last outward sign of disobedience is, is unreliable, unfaithful, ungrateful, unrestrained, unaware, unstable. Um, it says un, ungrateful again. How about that? unreliable. Let's get off that real quick so you won't notice. They do, not, they do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. This last verse is, is an interesting verse because he says, they, they don't turn to me. They're like a faulty bow. Now, what is a faulty bow? A faulty bow is a bow that doesn't shoot straight. That's their idea of it. So a faulty bow is, is, is a bow where you shoot it and the arrow just goes veering off somewhere else. It doesn't work right. And what is he telling them? He's telling them, look, you, you, you're not working right. You're not functioning right. This is not what you were made for. You're, you're warped and you don't shoot straight. And so for us, as we start to think about this, finally, just to wrap it up, one of the things I think about is when we were in the book of James, and uh, I mentioned this not too long ago, but it's just, to me, it's such a perfect thing where James tells us that the word of God is like a mirror. We look in a mirror and the mirror tells us the exact truth. Mirrors, Mirrors by nature don't lie. They tell the truth. They tell you exactly, 
then you decide what you do with that information. You, you, you have to act upon it. If you look in the mirror and you see, you know, a smudge on your forehead, and then you turn and you just go and go outside and go off and do something else, nothing has happened to the smudge. The mirror told you the truth. But now what do you do? You have to, you have to take this, you have to, you have to wash your forehead. And James is telling us that scripture helps us, that mirror helps us to investigate and understand why we're being disobedient, why maybe we're going in the wrong direction. It helps us say, what's, what led to this sin? What are the idle thoughts? What, what is the desire at the core? What's behind this that I'm involved? Is there any good in it? Where did it come from? And scripture will tell us, I've believed a lie. Scripture will be honest with us and tell us, this is a lie. Don't believe it. This is not true of you. And our problem is so many times in our lives, we believe lies. We believe what people tell us. We believe what, what our culture tells us. And God keeps saying, no, this is what's true. You're my child. I love you dearly. I sent my son to die for you. This is what's true. And when we go to Scripture and allow it to speak for us, it begins to tell us this is more than a weakness. This is unbelief, you know. And, and I start to realize, okay, if I'm ungenerous, un ungener not being generous, what do I get out of that? What do I get out of not being generous? If someone's struggling with sexual issues, what do I get out of that? If I, if I like to mock people or belittle people or oppress people in some way, how does that make me feel? What am I getting, superior? It's understanding. Scripture helps us understand who I am and what's behind some of these things and helps us to, to deal with it because we have to turn to God. The whole point of this passage, we have to turn to God and let him heal, heal us. There is no other way. And so... For us, just like back then, God is saying, consider your ways. You need to repent. You need to walk in the light. You need to make appropriate changes. Confession and repentance needs to be a daily part of your life. And when we do that, he says, I rescue, I heal, I bind, I revive. All those things we saw in this passage, he says, I do that for those who seek me earnestly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Help us to take it to heart. Lord, for every one of us, there are things we can learn, even this morning, about you, about us, and about how we relate to you. Help us to be willing to make the changes. Help us to be willing to do the hard work of spending time in your word and letting it speak to us and challenge us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would get in our face and would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that in those things, then we would turn to you and confess and repent. We thank you, Lord, that this is available to us. In what seems like uh, in this book of Hosea, a hopeless situation, Lord, there is hope. There is always hope if we turn to you. And help us to see how that applies to us in this time in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you, and you are dismissed.